Good morning. Whew. All right, so in a couple days, 2020 will be over. I don't know about you, I'm excited. I mean, like, whew, made it. <laughs> I mean, oh, man, uh, this has been a rough year. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to, to, to not say we're in 2020 anymore. I'm excited to be done with this year. I'm excited about 2021. Now, I want to be honest. I'm not excited about 2021 because I think I'm going to wake up on Friday morning and it's going to be some, like, magical wonderland with unicorns and rainbows and sprinkles falling from heaven. It's going to look a lot the same as it did on Thursday night. But I am excited for 2021 because I honestly believe that God has some amazing stuff in store for his people. I really do. I am excited. As a follower of Jesus, I rest on the fact that our greatest days, our greatest days, our biggest wins are ahead not behind, all right? And I believe that to be absolutely true here and now. I am excited to see what God does through Whiting Christian Church in 2021. Honestly, wholeheartedly. See, as Christians, we have this bold mission, this, this bold mission to make disciples of all nations, this bold mission to step out in faith. But let's be honest, especially after the year we've had, boldness does not come easy. In fact, in today's world, living boldly on mission can be downright scary. And I totally get it. We want to just, like, pull our kids in tight. We want to shut the doors. We want to draw the shades. We want to escape the madness of the outside world. We look for escapes, sanctuaries from the stress, a good book, a video game, Sunday afternoon Netflix binge. Anyone? We fall back on nostalgia. We live in our idealized memories of some time before the craziness. Whether that was decades ago or whether that was February 2020, we tend to live in that time before and just can't wait to get back. No, no, no. Our greatest days are ahead. If we can just control the world around us, immediately around us, we can insulate ourselves, right, from the stress of uncertainty. We can feel safe. I know this mindset because I often live in this mindset. When I need to escape, my, my thing is that it's the Netflix binge, all right? It's the Netflix or the Hulu binge, and I just start watching a TV show. You can ask my wife. I'll just disappear. <laughs> you know I'm stressed out when I've seen an entire season of Star Trek in a single day. <laughs> Because, see, those worlds, they begin and end in the span of a single episode or a season or a series. It's finite. It's limited. There's a beginning and the end. Therefore, it's knowable. It's controllable. It's comfortable. Now, pause here. Momentary relief. Momentary Sabbath time margin to catch your breath. That's good. We all need margin. We all need Sabbath. We all need that time to recharge our batteries. However, it becomes incredibly problematic when escape, when comfort, and when isolation become the goal of our existence, right? 
See, as followers of Jesus, we have this bold mission to make disciples of all nations. God has called us to help literally restore creation. That is a big job, and that's a job that you cannot do from the comfort of isolation. See, we are called to step into the dark corners of the world and to bring peace. We are called to wade into the rough waters and bring grace with every step, to bring hope, to bring peace, to bring love, to bring joy. We are God's people, and we have a mission to be able to reflect the light of God into every corner of this world, and that simply cannot be done from a place of comfort and isolation. You see, as a community of Whiting Christian Church, uh, you've actually chosen to embrace this mission wholeheartedly before I got here. Uh, you guys uh, 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 reworked your, your, your mission statement. You have this statement that I, I just fell in love with when I was uh, interviewing here. I love this statement. I totally could get behind it. This idea, this mission that, that shapes everything we do is that we have a goal to build Christ-like communities one neighbor at a time. That is a bold mission. And you cannot do that in isolation. See, it's far more than words. It's not, it, it's, it, it's a, it, it's not just something nice to say. It's a mission. It's a responsibility to step out of our sheltered bubbles and to truly invest in the lives of our neighbors. To help rich and poor people, hurting people, addicted people, healthy and afflicted people. To help them accept the grace and the love and the purpose and the identity that Jesus offers freely. It is our responsibility to walk into the dark corners of our county. It's our responsibility to invite people into our lives. It's our responsibility to prove to the culture around us that there is a God who is radically and emphatically pursuing them with his love and his grace and his forgiveness. See, we cannot do that from a place of isolation. We cannot do that from a place of comfort. So, how do we do that in 2021? With the world we just had, how do we, as individual, finite, flawed people, how do we actually stand in the face of all of this cultural weight and baggage to actually change a world? How do we, how do, we do that? This morning, I want to walk through three stories in Scripture that deal with just this question. Three events that illustrate God's people taking on bold, impossible tasks. Now, there are far more than three stories in Scripture. In fact, the Bible is full of stories about his followers taking on impossible odds. But these are my three most favorite stories. Okay? And I'm going to ask you in this three questions. So those of you who are planners and note takers, leave room on your notes because I'm going to ask you three questions and I want you to write those questions down when I get to it. And I want you to be able to answer those questions. So leave some room. The first story we're going to talk about, the first thing we're going to talk about is risk. Risk. And we're going to go to one of my very favorite books in Scripture. It's a book in the Old Testament. It's a book that centers around a leader in Israel with a good, powerful, strong name courageous name, you might even say. One might even say it's the best name in the Bible. 
It's the book of Joshua. See, Joshua was a leader in Israel. And he was a leader uh, immediately following the death of Moses. See, Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land because of his sin. So Joshua was the one that God called to lead the people of Israel from the wilderness that they've been wandering now for 40 years. He was the one who was going to lead the people into the promised land. And see, I I love this book. This book tends to orbit around the importance of following God's path. All right, it breaks down all the battles and tribulations and stuff about the people entering the promised land and sometimes just like walking this path that's as thin as an edge of a knife just following God's plan. It's a great book to read. One of the best examples of these themes in this book is the account of the battle of Jericho. See, Jericho was one of the strongest cities in the area. All right, Jericho was this huge city with this massive wall around it that the people were so confident in their defenses that they actually built their homes right up against the wall. In some cases, even inside the structure of the wall itself. Imagine being so confident in your defenses that you literally, like, make the wall your house. (laughs) Like, they were supremely confident in their defenses. And this city was literally standing in the way of the Israelites coming in to, to, uh, to hold their promised home, to take the promised land. This city was literally in the way. It was the greatest, most powerful, strongest city in the world. And here it was, blocking the path of the Israelites. And they were scared of the Israelites. They heard that God had sent them on this mission to take their land, and so they had battened down the hatches. They had gotten ready for war. The strongest city in the world is armed to the teeth, ready to take on these Israelite invaders in their minds. So we're going to go to the book of Joshua. We're going to be in chapter 6. I'm reading from the NLT, so it might be a little different than the books in your seats here. But here we go, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho. I've given you its king and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should, all right, here comes the plan, should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead with the ark each carrying a ram's horn. And on the seventh day, you are to march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their horns. When you hear the priests give one last blast of their ram horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can, then the walls of the town will collapse and the people will charge straight into the town. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> imagine, for your, imagine being one of those soldiers in Israel ready to take on this mighty city. Okay? Just, just put yourself in that position. Your father um, and you have lived for years in the desert. That's what you've known, and you've grown up with this idea of being able to take the promised land. And now you step foot into this promised land area, and for the first time in your life, you're seeing cities. I mean, you're seeing uh, uh, fortifications. Because keep in mind, they were wandering in the desert. There weren't exactly giant towers and walls there. So here's, for the first time, they're seeing a real city, and it's Jericho. It is strong. It is mighty. And you are one of the soldiers that's being called to take that city. And you're like, all right, I don't know how God's going to do this, but I mean, I'm a little scared, 
But I know God's awesome, so all right, here we're going to do this. So they, you get ready. You're going to the briefing. Joshua comes up the meeting before the battle. Joshua's about to lay down the plan. You're like, all right, all right, get the psyched up. And then Joshua goes around the town. Just quietly walk around. And you're like, what? And then, then on the next day, on the next day, we're going to walk around the town again. And then we're going to do that again. And again, we're going to do that for six days. We're just going to walk silently around the town. Yeah, they're going to shout insults. They're going to shoot arrows at us. They're going to throw rotten food. It doesn't matter. We're just going to quietly walk around the town. And then on the seventh day, our priests are going to, are going to blow trumpets, and then you're just going to yell. You're just going to yell really, really, really loud. Just yell loud. Don't worry about your swords. Just yell. And the walls, the walls are just going to come down. It'll, it'll just come down. And just, we'll just win. I don't know about you, but if I was a soldier in that army, I would need a new pair of pants at that point. <laughs> That's nuts. That's insane. Like, you're telling me we're going to take the strongest city in all creation. We're going to take the strongest city without catapults, without battering rams, without ladders. We're going to take it with a parade. We're going to do a parade. We're going to do a parade around a city, and we're going to win. Now, of course, on this side of history, we know that God wins the day and the walls come down just as he says they would. But remember, if you were one of those soldiers at the time, this is scary. This is a risk. I mean, think about it. Next time you have a big interview or a big meeting or a test, try walking into the office, spinning in a circle, blowing into a paper horn and screaming at the top of your lungs and tell me how it goes. That's what they're being told to do. An impossible challenge with what looks like an absolutely ridiculous set of tasks to complete it. God has called his people to take a massive risk here, at least in their perception, and trust God to protect them in what looks like an absolutely impossible situation. It takes bold faith to be able to walk into danger like that, to risk literally everything on a course of action that for the rest of the world makes no sense, <laughs> to accomplish a task that seems impossible. All right, question time. Question number one. What is the risk that God is currently calling you to take? What's your Jericho? What impossible risk is God calling you toward? What bold action is God putting on your horizon in your vision in front of you? How are you being called to advance God's mission, God's, God's kingdom? What is the big, scary, impossible task that weighs on your mind? Maybe you push it to the back of your head, you don't think about it. Maybe it just seems small, so you try to talk it down. Maybe it just seems crazy, so you just try to talk it down. But that thing in your head, we all got one where God is nudging you and pushing you towards that crazy thing, that big risk that God is calling you towards. What is it? All right, think about that. Maybe it's relatively uh, uh, easy to think of, like it's just sharing your faith with your neighbors. And while I say, oh, it's just, yeah, right, Josh, that's the scariest thing in the world I can think of. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's uh, 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 taking a big financial hit to support a cause that you absolutely adore. Or maybe it's like huge, putting your reputation on the line so that every single person in Monona County hears about the grace of Jesus. 
What is the big risk that God is calling you to take? All right, next story. We're going to call this one around comfort. Comfort. You see, for our next biblical event, we're actually going to move the clocks forward several generations. The Israelites have claimed their promised land. They've won the battle of Jericho, and they've set down roots, and generations have gone. All right? They have grown. They've started to take God for granted. <clears throat> Over time, the Israelites have entered into this cycle of, of uh, uh, forgetting God's power and provision and then wandering away from his commands, and then they end up getting in trouble and being persecuted and invading by these four, by, invaded by these foreign armies. And then in the midst of their, their most deepest struggle, God will raise up these temporary leaders called judges to lead Israel out of their mess. And this cycle happens again and again and again and again. All right, our next story is about one of those judges. My very favorite judge, Gideon. See, Israel had grown comfortable in this period of peace that had lasted for 40 years, okay? And in that time, they again begin to forget events like Jericho. They forgot about God's power and provision, and they grew complacent. And they started wandering away from God's commands. Then, just as things had happened before, a foreign army came in. This time it was the Midianites. And they swept through Israel, and they subjugated and killed most of her people, and destroying or confiscating and stealing almost all of the food that the Israelites had grown. The Israelites then lived in fear and isolation for seven years, living in caves, eking out a survival living. When God then calls Gideon, he's the youngest child in the smallest family. And he calls Gideon while he is threshing grain in secret because he has, to, he has to harvest his grain in a cave at night to avoid the Midianite army. So God calls him, God tells Gideon that this kid is going to lead the armies that defeat the Midianites. But Gideon's not so sure. He's a bit reluctant. You see, the Midianites at the time, they're scary. Estimates were that their army ranged on the low end somewhere between 75,000 soldiers and on the high end, 135,000 soldiers. And there just aren't that many Israelites. And then on top of that, the Midianites are known for being cruel and brutal. After all, they've been going around stealing food so that they would starve the Israelites out. Meanwhile, the Israelites are starving. Most of their people have been killed or sold into slavery. So most of Israel is living in caves around what used to be their kingdom, eking out a small survival living under the watchful eye and ever-present soldiers of the Midianite army. So Gideon is an extremely reluctant leader. And he demands sign after sign from God before he finally was willing to do what God asked him to do. And each time, he needed reassurance before he'd be willing to leave his comfort of survival. He didn't live a comfortable life. He lived one that was barely surviving, but it was comfortable to him because he knew how to stay out of trouble. Eventually, Gideon relented and began calling together the men of Israel. And to his surprise, 33,000 men showed up. He didn't realize there were that many Israelite soldiers left, but 33,000 fighting men showed up to fight for the cause. 
And so while the odds were still not necessarily in his favor, they're still two to one at best, he's like, all right, maybe we can do this. Then God spoke to Gideon, and this is in Judges 7. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, they may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 men went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. So now Gideon has 10,000 men, hardly enough to take the Midianites. Hardly enough. I mean, still an army, but he is scared. Before it was shaping out to be like a, a weird, miraculous thing. Now it's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I imagine Gideon sitting in his tent at night with all the maps laid out, just trying desperately to find the perfect strategy to make the most of his tiny force. But God wasn't done. Continuing in verse 4, the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. So Gideon brought them down to the water. And God told them to put, their, put the people into two groups of water based on how they drink the water. One group grabbed it with their hands, and the other group got on all fours and sucked the water straight with their lips. And God said to send the ones that get on all fours and drink the water with their lips, send them home. The ones that cup the water with their hands to keep them. In the end, only 300 men stayed with Gideon. So imagine being Gideon at that moment. 300 I got 300 soldiers. That's it. Now, when I say 300, we're not talking the Spartan 300, all right? Spartan 300, like, they got shields and swords and, like, washboard abs, and they look cool. No, no, these are starving, barely surviving Israelite soldiers who are farming in secret. And there's 300 of them. Continuing in verse 7. Uh, Lord Gideon, the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. Eventually, God commands him farther to go into battle with not swords and spears and shields, but rather with torches, clay pots, and trumpets. What? We have starving Israelite farmer and shepherds equipped like a marching band, like they're running errands for groceries, against 75,000 of the cruelest, strongest troops in the known world at the time, at minimum. Now, I want to encourage you to read that story because the way he wins the battle is kind of awesome and there needs to be a Gideon movie, frankly, because it rocks. But long story short, he goes on to win that battle. And he wins that battle without a single casualty. And Gideon's army decimates the Midianite army in the process. This event goes down in history as a moment that God again showed all his power by allowing his people to overcome an impossible challenge. And all he asked was that Gideon and his followers release their comforts, their ideas of security about what they knew to be true and trust him to carry them through. Gideon wasn't comfortable 
in that battle. He wasn't exactly comfortable living in fear of the Midianites. He was surviving, but he was comfortable in his knowledge of how to stay out of trouble and how to dodge the armies. The story of Gideon is a story of a man hesitant to follow God and resistant to the boldness of God, all because of his comforts. See, if it's God winning the battle, it doesn't matter if he had 100,000 troops or one dude. God's power is the one that wins the battle. The number of troops doesn't matter. The weapons doesn't matter because God's power is supreme over everything. But Gideon was far more comfortable going up against a tough enemy with 33,000 troops instead of 300. Sure, God can do it, but he's certainly more comfortable with that cushion, right? And I think if we're honest, a lot of us get that. We want the cushion. We want the security blanket. We want the security net. When God calls you to live boldly, his power is unbeatable. It does not require a cushion to succeed. In fact, God often calls us to do exactly the opposite. God calls us to submit to him, to trust him to carry us through the, through the process. Often we become so consumed with building that security net and maintaining our comfort that we fail to step out boldly and trust the one who ultimately holds all the power. You see, comfort, believe it or not, can be incredibly dangerous. Comfort will often work against God's purpose. Not always, but often. As I said before, margin is good. You need Sabbath, you need to recharge, but after you rest, you need to get back in the fight. That's why only one day out of seven is considered Sabbath. Holding on to comfort will slowly erode and kill your boldness and erode your ability to trust God. We become eventually like the Israelites, complacent. And we slowly forget that all we have belongs to God. If we want to live boldly on mission for God, we must release some of our comforts. We have to pray that God unsettles us. That's scary stuff, praying that God would unsettle you. But that's what we have to do. So question time. Question number two. What comforts are hard for you to let go of? What comforts in your life, in your work, in your family might be keeping you back from living as boldly on mission as you could be? In what areas of your life do you need assurances, signs from God in order to take a step? Before taking a risk or before jumping for God, before taking that risk that God's put on your head, what comforts are holding you back? All right, number three. Our last story I'm going to call Wet Socks. So here's a little review. God is calling us to this bold mission, both as individuals and as a church community. We are called to, uh, to be world changers. However, our comforts can often hold us back and prevent us from taking that leap of faith. Yet when we release our comforts, when we release that cushion of expectation, and we release control and let God work his power in us, that's when God's power truly shines. But, maybe you've been down this road before. Maybe you have leapt in the past. Maybe you've taken on an impossible task and you charged forward 
and it did not turn out how you expected. Life got hard. And you ultimately regretted your decisions because you look back on the decision to jump and maybe, looking back, maybe I shouldn't have done that. What do we do when living boldly results in pain, loss, or even failure? Our third person story deals with exactly that. So now we're going to jump way, way forward in time, past the history of Gideon, all the way to the New Testament. And we're going to look at a period of time when Jesus is actually preaching to crowds during his ministry. And we're going to look at one of his disciples, Peter. Now, Peter was a bit of a hothead. He was bold. In fact, he was the boldest disciple. This was the guy who would always take a risk. All right? He was the guy who was the first in line. He was the loudest. He was the first to jump. Peter was just like on fire. After a rather large gathering uh, where Jesus had actually fed the 5,000. So the the disciples have just seen this huge miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray and sent his disciples, Peter included, off to the next town. Now this worried them a little bit because going to the next town meant actually taking a boat. And so they were getting on a boat and going away while Jesus was going up to pray. And so they were like, how how are you going to catch up? (laughs) And Jesus was like, no, 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 don't worry about it. I got you. Go. I'll just let Matthew tell the rest of the story. Uh, Matthew, uh, chapter 14, verse 24. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them, walking on the water. What? When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. I would be too. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Do not be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. And then Peter called out to him, Lord, if it's really you, imagine his guts. I don't know if it's you. If it's you, make me, I'm going to walk out to you. Tell me I'm going to be okay. (laughs) Jesus like, yeah, come. So Peter went over to the side of the boat. He got over the side of the boat and he literally walked on the water towards Jesus. When he saw how strong the wind and the waves were, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? So here's Peter being one of the quickest to take risks, one of the boldest to take risks. And he sees his teacher out walking in the water. And what does he do? He's like, all right, if that's really you, tell me I can walk on water. I don't know if I would have done that, but whatever. You know, you do you, Peter. Um, and Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, get out in the water, come to me. So he does the craziest thing in the world to me. He takes his boat and he literally gets out of the boat. Imagine the guts it takes to step out of the boat to walk on water. Just put yourself in that moment for a second. Like, that's nuts. And so he starts walking on the water and he's literally doing it. He's walking on the water and for a few steps he is standing on the water and it's crazy. And then he realizes how insane it really is and starts to sink. It's like the the roadrunner who runs out into the thing and is like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. But Jesus was right there to pick him up. You see, if we're being honest, we've got to acknowledge that there are times when we boldly step out of our comfort zones and the results do not play out like we hoped. 
We face new challenges. We might get excited at the beginning, but we face new challenges and new obstacles, and there are countless stories of persecution around the world. People sitting in jail cells for doing nothing else than preaching about Jesus. Christian persecution is real in the world. People will take bold action and then pay for it in brutal ways. We see it over and over again. Let me be blunt. The path to which God has called us is not easy. Living boldly for Jesus can be painful, even dangerous at times. You see, God always equips us for the task ahead. God calls, God equips the called. He does not call the equipped. Okay, he equips the called. But sometimes that may mean knocking your army down to 300 people instead of 33,000. This idea that if you follow Jesus and live boldly for him, that everything will just work out and be easy, is just not true. In fact, Jesus told us the exact opposite. He said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross to follow me. Now, he said this before he was executed on a cross. The cross is not a holy symbol at this moment. The cross is a method of execution. At the time, the phrase, pick up your cross and follow me, would be the same as saying, pick up the electric chair and follow me. Pick up your lethal injection and follow me. Put in your cyanide capsule. Be ready to die and lose your life and follow me. He's saying the path is hard. The good news is, though, that when we step boldly into uncertainty for the sake of living out the gospel, you may sink at times. I will even say you will sink at times. But every single time you do, Jesus is there to pick you up. When we try, when we trip up, and when we sink, it doesn't mean that we need to stop being bold. It means we need to trust God more. We need to reach out for his hand and let him pull us up to the water. There is no reason to fear failure because Jesus has got your back. God's got us. When failure is no longer a reason to fear, we are free to be as bold and as big as God requires. And I am no longer a slave to my fear. Because I'm a child of God. To quote John Ortberg, he wrote this awesome book, and I, I love this statement. If you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. <laughs> Question time. Question number three. What frightens you about failure? What scares you? What fears are holding you back from jumping into the mission that God is laying out for you? What is preventing you from getting out of the safety of the boat and stepping onto the waves? What frightens you about failure? Yeah, you know, the world is nuts right now. The world is, feels crazy. It's not just you. We all feel it. But this is not a time for complacency. This is a time for God's people to be bold. It's time to be bold in our actions, doing everything we can to heal the broken world around us. It is our collective responsibility as the church to restore and redeem creation. And that work starts right here in our towns, in our streets, in our families, in our neighborhoods. I don't know about you, but me, honestly, 
All cards on the table. I am excited because I feel like there is something bubbling here. I feel like God is at work in you, in this community. I feel like we're on the verge of something amazing. I feel like God is moving. But that means now is the time. God is calling you, calling me, calling us to trust him, step out in faith so that he can use us in amazing ways. So let's go back to those three questions. What is the risk that God is calling you to take? What comforts are hard for you to let go of? And what frightens you about failure? What is the risk God is willing you to take? Is God calling you to reach out to your neighbors, lead a small group, mentor a child? Maybe you and your spouse are being convinced right now and convicted to consider a significant life change, and maybe you're, you're, you're playing with the idea of fostering or even adopting. What is that big risk, that huge God-sized risk that just seems way too big to even consider? Or maybe God's calling you to finally take the plunge. You've been dancing around this Christianity thing for a while, but you've never been baptized. And so maybe that's the risk God is calling you towards to finally commit your life to Jesus and, and pursue baptism. What is the risk that God is calling you to take? What comforts are hard for you to relinquish? In other words, what comforts in your life right now are holding you back from living boldly on faith? Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's simply the knowledge of how things are supposed to work. You want to know how it all plays out. What comforts are holding you back? And finally, what frightens you about failure? I want you to really ask that question. What is all that scary about failure? What is it? Because when we stand forgiven, when we're offered perfect grace that passes all understanding, when our failures are forgiven and our shortcomings are not held against us, is there anything at all in failure that has a reason to fear? If Jesus... God, the creator of the universe, has offered to carry us through our darkest times if you are no longer defined by your failures, but instead defined by the fact that God loves you, then what about failure can scare us? What frightens you about failure? Name it. Name it. Name what what, what holds your fear. God is calling us to live boldly, to step out of the safety of our boat and walk out onto the waves. Don't let the fear of getting wet socks stop you from walking on water. We're going to pray here in a second. And I want to invite you guys to pray with me. And I want you to to think through those three questions while we're praying. I I want you to really rest on those three questions. What is the risk that God is calling you to take? What comforts are holding you back? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? We are the church. We're God's people. We're called to stand in the midst of a crazy world and live boldly in our collective mission to build a new type of community, one that's based on Jesus, one that's based on grace, one that's based on love, flips the whole power structure upside down. We're building that community one neighbor at a time. What are you afraid of? What comforts are holding you back? What's the risk? Let's pray. Dear Father God, 
You are so big. You are so powerful. We know that the task ahead does not rely on us. It relies on you. So to that end right now, that first question, God, what are you calling us towards? Whatever that risk is in our mind right now, to anybody hearing my voice, whether they're in this room or online or whatever, God, what, what is that thing that you're calling us towards? Whatever that is, God, I want you to, to highlight that for us. Maybe it's sharing our faith with someone important. Maybe it's living on fire for you. Maybe it's taking the plunge and being baptized. Maybe it's starting down a whole new season of life. Whatever it is, God, what is that risk that you're calling us towards? Right now, I also want to pray over the comforts in our life that are holding us back, the things that are holding us down, the, the comforts and securities, whether that's, that's the things that we, we hold on to, the comforts that we hold on to every day, or whether that's just the security of knowing how things are going to work. I want to see those comforts. I want you to name those comforts in our minds, and I want to pray that you would unsettle us. I know that's a dangerous prayer, but I'm going to pray that you unsettle us so that those comforts never get in the way of the bold mission that you're calling us towards. And then three, God, all those fears, the fear of failure, God, we name our fears. We know that with you, no failure matters because we are not defined by our failures, we're defined by you. So we can fail a thousand times and still be your cherished possession. So to that end, God, we say that we will not be afraid of failing. And so we lay our fear, whatever that fear of failure is, the, the, only, the thing that's holding us back, we lay that fear at your feet. We want to be your people to live boldly for you. We want to go on your bold mission. We don't want our comforts to hold us back. And we will not be held back by fear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed with us today, if you prayed that prayer along with us, I want to invite you to let me know. All right, you can send me an email at josh at whitingchristian.org uh, or you can uh, Facebook message the church. We'll see it. You can Facebook message me personally. I want to know what risk God has put in your mind and I want to be able to pray alongside you and pray for you in that journey. Don't keep it to yourself. Don't. Don't keep it to yourself. That way you can be held accountable to it. Share it with me, with your friends, with your loved ones. Because here's the reality. God is calling us to act. He's calling us to act now. 2021 is going to be a good year. There is work to do, though, today, now. And we are the ones that God is sending. But God is the way maker. He's the one equipping us to be the light in the darkness. Let's not miss the chance to walk on water because we're afraid of having wet socks. <laughs>